Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. God bless you. Glad to be here. We are starting a new series. It's going to be a two-month two series, so through March and April. And we'll call it the non-negotiables. And these are the aspects of our faith that we can't give up, all right? These are, this is what makes Christianity, Christianity. And it's based on the Nicene Creed. Uh, and uh, here we go. <laughs> so it's an eight-week series based on the Nicene Creed. Uh, the Creed was written in 325 A.D., but it was based on the Apostles' Creed. And the reason they call it the Apostles' Creed is because uh, the, the tradition is is that it was actually written by the, the apostles. Uh, so it dates back. We can't prove that, but um, what evidence we have is that it, the Apostles' Creed dates back to the, the very first church, like the 12 apostles. And again, we can't prove that, but it is evidence of being used all the way back to the, to the early first century as a statement of faith. The Nicene Creed <coughs> was... Um, uh, it's called the Nicene Creed because uh, a council of church leaders in 325 gathered in a town called Nicaea, which is in Asia. It's uh, part of uh, what is now Turkey. And I just pulled it up on the map, and the team who went to Istanbul, uh, we were only 100 kilometers from Nicaea. I wish we'd gone over there. We could have gone and, and seen that. And then we went down to Izmir, which is even further. But, uh, and so they gathered together in Asia and wrote this statement of belief that summarizes the core non-negotiable aspects of our faith. And it actually predates the New Testament canon. And what that means, a canon is, is not just something you shoot cannonballs from, okay? So a canon is a collection of writing. Okay, and so the Bible is a, there's a, that's a, just a, a term called the, the canon is all of the books of the Bible. So there's 66 books in the Bible. They were each written individually. The New Testament has 27 books. And so at some point in history, they had to sit down and decide, well, which writings are part of the Bible? Because there were other writings written by Christian leaders that uh, they realized, you know, there was good teaching, but it wasn't inspired by God. It wasn't authoritative. And so this creed, what's important to understand is that uh, most of the New Testament was all written, all of the New Testament was written before 100 A.D. at the latest, probably more like 90 A.D. Uh, and some of, the, some of the writings were written just a few years after Jesus' uh, ascension. There's, there's debate as to the exact timing. Um, but uh, the collection of writings that were recognized as the New Testament uh, didn't come about until uh, 365. And so 325, they had this statement. And in fact, this statement was one of the statements used to evaluate whether something could be accepted into the New Testament. In other words, it had to agree with all of these parts of the faith. Yeah. And uh, which actually, I didn't know that uh, uh, before I started studying this. It was used as a personal confession as well as the rule of faith. And so just like we did this morning when we, we stood and confessed it aloud, 
And so it was a confession of faith, usually used during a baptism. And so if someone wanted to be baptized, they would make, uh, state this uh, statement of faith as evidence that they believed. And um, as a guard of faith in that it protected against heresies. And so the Nicene Creed expanded on the Apostles' Creed, which you can still look up. It's, it's still available and still used. It's just a little shorter but the Nicene Creed added particular wording to clarify against some of the heresies or false teachings that were around in the 300s. And guess what? All of those false teachings are still around. It's the same things. Like, identical. In fact, <laughs> every controversy in Christianity today is a controversy that has already been settled multiple times and it's just it's it's funny in one sense but it's sad because if people just read their history books they would have realized oh this got debated and this was the outcome of it and this is how it got settled and uh and so so people forget that and so we repeat history right <clears throat> and so they incorporated these statements to protect against heresy and i saw that the creed then it's kind of like guardrails you know, and uh, about a year ago, I did a men's retreat in Georgia with our South Carolina church, and we went to this, uh, where we were staying, and just a few miles away, there was this ravine, this uh, gully, goal, whatever they call it, big giant ravine, it was like seven or 900 feet deep, and you could hike to the bottom of it, and we were like, oh, that's cool, let's go do it. <clears throat> when we first got there, we'd walk in, and you could literally walk right to the edge of this seven, eight hundred foot straight drop off and there's a mountain river going up. And thankfully, there was a good sturdy steel guardrail, you know? <laughs> so even then, some people were like, I'm not going to, but if there's a rail, oh, I was right there, I was leaning over, <laughs> you know? Uh, and that protects you from falling off. And so that's what the creed is. It's like a guardrail <clears throat> that defines, okay, this is the barrier this keeps us safe. We have to. We believe these things. If there's anything in here that that you, you know you, you don't understand or believe, then then this is a core belief of Christianity. But then I I saw it as a different kind of rail, kind of like a train track rail, you know. And the purpose of a guardrail is different than a train rail, a train track rail, right? Uh, a train track rail, uh, it, it, they're there to propel, okay. And so Christianity. <clears throat> Is like the train, the, God, the, 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 the creed and these non-negotiable truths. It's what keeps us on track. You know, we preach these things. This is the message we're communicating. And that track uh, 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 drives Christianity through time. Right? Through generations and cultures all over the world. And so I loved it <clears throat> when we were in Turkey. We went to Izmir and we attended a service of a church that we're connected to. And we walk in and guess what? They were doing communion. I think it was actually the first Sunday of the month. Or was, I don't know if they do it every Sunday, but they were doing communion. And they were, they, were, it was, they were doing it in Turkish, right? And so we didn't understand. But uh, pretty quickly, as they were reciting the creed, I figured out they're reciting the Nicene Creed. It was so jazzy that here we are, different continent, in Asia, different language, different people, 
uh, agreeing to the same thing. So they said the creed, then they partook in communion, just like we did this morning. And that is happening and has happened for uh, almost 2,000 years throughout the world, and it keeps Christianity on track. What we're going to do over the next eight weeks is look at these truths and, and ask, well, what do these mean? Why are they important? <clears throat> and how they should shape our lives. Okay, we are not going to go through and give you the biblical basis for each of them, all right? Because uh, it would actually be really redundant if the, Bible, if, if, if the New Testament was selected based on the creed. It's almost like you don't have to prove the creed by the Bible because it worked the other way around historically. Uh, but more importantly, we want to see, okay, why, what does it mean? And so, so we've been doing the reciting the creed at communion, and I've often thought, I wonder if people know what this means. I mean, they say, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made. I mean, this is not just normal language. Mm-hmm. And each one of these words were chosen very intentionally, all right? They just didn't come up with this. This was something that they labored over uh, for a long time to make sure that the wording accurately reflected the truths of Christianity, and they, 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 they boiled it down uh, to, so it communicated the essential truths that are non-negotiable for our faith. And so I'm going to read again real, real quick. We already recited it out loud together, so I'm just going to quickly read through it because this is the Nicene Creed. Do you notice <clears throat> the wording it changes a little bit because guess what? It, it wasn't originally written in English. I know. In fact, the English language had yet to be invented, right? Developed. I know, for like a long time. It wasn't even close. Uh, people living up in England, they were grunting at that point. No. <laughs> just kidding. Okay, so we... We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things seen and unseen. It was written in Latin, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, possibly Greek, probably, probably both. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God, from, uh, true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered. He died. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of Scripture. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. Amen. <clears throat> All right, there should be an exclamation point at the end. Uh, so this week we're looking at who is God, or the first article, the first uh, uh, a few sen- uh, sentence there, which is, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things, and of all that is seen and unseen. And it's significant that the creed begins with the statement, 
Uh, we believe, or actually in the original writing, it's I believe, because it was a personal statement. Uh, this is significant, all right, uh, that Christianity must be embraced personally through faith. In other words, the whole of Christianity uh, having impact, having effect, making a difference in your life requires you to personally believe it. Right? I believe this. It is, the, it is faith that engages you with Christianity and nothing else can. It cannot be practiced apart from belief. Right? Now many religions can be, and in fact many Christians practice Christianity apart from belief. And what I mean by that is that they fall into routine or empty ceremony. Even if it's going to church, giving offerings, taking communion. Some people even just make reading the Bible just to be a routine. i got to do it because I'm supposed to do it. I travel to Japan frequently and we go to temples. And people practice their religion, but they don't really believe it, many of them. Because they come and they'll, they'll burn incense. And there's, there's altars where they, they, uh, they either... Uh, take a, 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 a blessing or they write a prayer request and they leave it at the temple and they leave and often we ask them you know why are you here and they say well we always come you know this time of the year or it's a tradition that's our family it's part of our culture what god who what who is the god that you're worshiping and they can't answer that they're like what do you mean what do you mean these prayers, who are you praying to? They were like, what do you mean? No, we just write down the prayer and we put it here and we leave an offering and it gives us good luck. So that's practicing a religion without any personal belief. And a lot of people in the world live life that way. They just think that that's what you have to, you have to throw the obligations, obligations uh, <clears throat> to, uh, to the gods to keep them happy so you have good luck. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity starts with Belief, personally embracing it. Uh, and this is important. It's not, that means Christianity is not something that can be inherited. It's not cultural. No one is born Christian. No one. Right? You can be born into a Christian family. Maybe your parents were Christian. Maybe you were raised in a culture that is heavily influenced by Christianity. But that doesn't make you a Christian. Right? Because being a Christian means that you have personally embraced that you actually believe these things to be true. And it's uh, radically different than many other religions. Islam, for example, um, believes that if you're born to Islamic parents, parents who believe in Islam, who are Muslim, then you are Muslim. Period. And in some of the Muslim nations, Christians who are born, uh, who have children, their children are born and they're a Christian and they're given a little mark to indicate that, that they're allowed to practice Christianity. But if you're born a Muslim, you cannot convert. Uh, in some countries, if you convert as a Muslim, you're arrested and possibly killed. Because they view that faith is like inherited. 
And Christianity here is stating really clearly that it's not. It's something that's based on personal faith, belief. And it's personal but not private. We all confess this together. And so there's a corporate nature of it. Any religion or religious system that is privatized, that is kept secret, it becomes corrupt. It's a guaranteed way. Even if you take a Christian community and you put walls around it, very quickly it goes right to hell. <laughs> or hell comes to it. All right, Because it's not meant to be that way. We are to live our faith personally but not privately. Okay, We need to be open and public about our faith. It's individual, but it's not individualistic. We do this corporately. We're part of a family. <clears throat> so this should shape us. It should change us. Uh, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes uh, to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so having faith, having belief, shapes our identity, shapes who we are, shapes how we interact with God, shapes how we receive from God, shapes how we see the world. That we believe in one God. Obviously, this is a clear declaration of monotheism versus pantheism. Pantheism is just a fancy word to say that there is a multitude, there's many gods. Monotheism, one God. <clears throat> Singular, that there's one God. Three great the three primary monotheistic religions of the world are Christianity, what's the next one? Islam, what's the next one? Judaism. Judaism. Isn't it interesting that they all go back to one dude, Abraham. What a dude, man. I, can't, I cannot wait to meet Abraham. Like, what was it about this guy who has shaped the whole world? That's astounding. So, but this is really significant, uh, especially in the ancient world, but you know, it's significant in our world today, that we believe that there's one God, all right, that there's not just a multitude you can pick from. And this is really based on an ancient confession of faith. It's the core statement of faith for the uh, uh, Judaic faith, for Hebrews, going way back to the time of Moses, and it's called the Shema, and a, a, a faithful Jewish person will say this, the first words out of their mouth every day, and the last words out of their mouth before they go to sleep. They whisper it into the ear of a child when they're born. It's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, uh, and you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. <clears throat> Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. But it's interesting, if you look at the language of this uh, ancient statement, there's actually unity uh, and diversity in this statement. Because the Lord, which is the Hebrew word Jehovah or Yahweh, uh, is a singular word. It's singular. But the Lord, our God... In the Hebrew, is the Elohim. And that is a plural. Okay? And so there's a Lord, Yahweh, personal, singular, is Elohim, God's. The Lord, Yahweh, is one. So it's almost a contradiction. And, and they've battled with, you know, Jew, Jewish scholars battle with how to deal with that. There's other places in the Old Testament where we see this too, as well. But there's, there's, there is a... There's an expression of diversity within the declaration of its, of its singleness. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. No, it doesn't. 
So the word one is one, means united, one, or first. It can mean primary, but it does mean one. Uh, And uh, it's it's important for us to to struggle this, that the creed and our statement of faith emphasizes that there is one God, but also that God is revealed in a triune nature. Okay, in the creed, we'll talk about the Father, we'll talk about the Son, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit. But there's one God. I heard one preacher say, you know, when we get to heaven, there's not going to be three thrones. There's going to be one throne. It's one God. We understand it's one God. But it's, but it's three persons. Now, <clears throat> do you know why some things are a mystery? Why the Bible doesn't explain this in detail? What's that? We, that's a good reason. We wouldn't, if I explained it to you, you wouldn't understand it. That's part of it. Another reason is that, so you think about it. Yeah. So you go, well, how can this be? You know, no one's figured this out. 2,000 years, some really smart people. Like really stinking stuff. C.S. Lewis, Ravi Zacharias, uh, Francis Schaeffer, Augustine. You know, so, these guys are brilliant. They can't. But we recognize it as essential to the faith. And however you define it, we see the Holy Spirit as a manifestation of God. We see Jesus as a manifestation of the one God. And we see the Father as a manifestation of the one God. And we need to embrace this. And we need to understand that it's being challenged today by secularism and pluralism. Secularism is the belief in our world that you need to keep your religion to yourself. And pluralism is that there's all kinds of religions, just keep it to yourself. Thank you very much. And we have to realize that that is unhealthy. What they're asking for is very destructive to society. So pluralism is actually okay. There's lots of different ideas. Let's talk about them and bring them into the public sphere. All right, which is the opposite. Secularism is let's keep everything secular, anything that's in the sacred, anything religion, keep it behind a wall. We don't want that part of normal conversation, work life, school life, right? And so the creed says, no, this is what we declare. He's one God, he's sovereign over all, and we confess it, we talk about it. Uh, So respecting other people doesn't mean that we yield truth. In other words, yeah, we can hear their opinion, but... Actually, it's good to express. And most people, if you just say, wow, that's interesting what you believe. This is what I believe. They're, they're really interested and willing to listen if you share it in that, in that context. Okay, I believe in one God, the Father. I love that the initial attribute that defines God is Father. They understood that in the, in the early century, in the early church. It's clear throughout Scripture. Uh, and we need to confess this and understand this ourselves. That the very first word that defines who this God is, is Father. That is the defining characteristic of God. He is the originator. What it means is he is the originator. He's the source. Uh, you know, he's the beginning point. But I love how God always comes as Father first. Fa- he's Father first. All right, even with Adam, when he shaped Adam and Eve, when he shaped Adam and he breathed life into him, Adam saw the Father. And then the Father provided a place for Adam and Eve to live and gave him everything. 
Later he added, oh, and don't eat of this tree or else there'll be consequences, right? Uh, he came as father, life giver first. The, the nation of Israel, he came first as their father. He found them in bondage and slavery and he rescued them and did all this amazing stuff. He came as their big dad and, and took care of the enemy and dragged them out of the enemy's camp and took them out and provided for them and then later became the lawgiver. Right? Father first, then lawgiver. All right? And it's the same way. God is Father primarily. Father, Father. And even the law is meant to teach us uh, as to his character so that we can know our Father better. Uh, Paul says this or reinforces this. <clears throat> It says, uh, but we know that there is only one God, the Father, who created everything. So throughout Scripture, we see God revealed as Father. And then in other places, it says, uh, that Paul, the, here, Paul is writing to a church in the, New, in, in, in the New Testament, and he's actually quoting from the Old Testament prophet, where it says, I will be your father. This is God speaking to his people that Paul takes and says, this applies to us as Christians. This applies to you, if you're hearing these words. This is God's word. I will be your father, and you will be my sons and God, uh, daughters. You know, when God says, you will, it has some authority, right? <laughs> this is the creator God who spoke everything into existence. And he's speaking into existence, I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters. This is the will of God. All right? The Lord Almighty says this. It's an expression. And I believe it's important because in humanity, there is a universal cry for fatherhood. We want and need being fathered. Even secular psychologists, sociologists uh, will tell you that the reason there's so many people in prison is because of a breakdown of fathering. But they're all, almost everybody ends up in prison has, did not have a good relationship. Or most of them never even knew their natural father. It's a complete societal breakdown. Without a father, we don't know how to do life because fathers teach us how to do life. Okay, So that is a universal. Why is it? so ingrained into us as humans in every culture because it is we are created by a God who actually wants sons and daughters. It's like this actually our need reveals God's will because God's will is to have relationship as a father to be a father to you and to have sons and daughters. So it's actually that, that response is a cry for God. So whoever you're talking to, it doesn't matter where they are in the faith spectrum, where they, even if they're a complete atheist, you can speak to that hunger to have a dad, to have a father. And you can say, you know, that comes from the nature of the creator father. That's in you for a reason. And only one father can satisfy that, regardless of what your natural father may have let you down. It, it can really shape your life. Jesus said, the father has entrusted everything to me. Look at that. You look at Jesus' relationship with the Father, and it's so radical. He saw that God had given him everything. Everything. I believe Jesus walked around as though he owned the planet. Because he did. <laughs> and he knew it. Right? 
No one truly knows the Son except the Father. And no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. If you're hearing these words, Jesus has chosen to reveal the Father to you. That's special. You know why? Because He wants you to be a son or a daughter. You know why? So that you can be entrusted with everything. Jesus came as the example. We're to follow Jesus. We are co-heirs with Jesus. <clears throat> In Islam, there's 99 names for God. Father's not one of them. Just to compare Christianity with some other religions. Father is essential to understanding of, of, the, of the Christian God. Seeing God as Father radically alters Christianity from a religion, just following instructions, rules, regulations, to a relationship. And it's all about the primary relationship of life. And we pray to a father, not to a distant, unrelated deity. <clears throat> and so this should really change how we see ourselves. We see ourselves as children of an eternal God. We see um, and treat others differently. I mean, if you embrace this, you have to realize that every man, woman, child on planet Earth is really a relative. You know, maybe they're dysfunctional or estranged, but we all are a family. And that, I mean, that is the core. That's what, that's what destroys racism. Really, is understanding God as Father should completely eradicate racism. Wherever there's racism, there's lack of an understanding of the character and person of the Father and His love, you know. Discrimination, uh, all of that junk is, is, a, is a, a working out of, of a lack of understanding God as Father. And doing life, understanding that uh, we're called to do life in this loving, intimate relationship <clears throat> uh, where God as a Father wants to do life with you, help you through uh, the things of life, to teach you, to mentor you, that He's present uh, and, and, and it's a radical life-giving idea. Okay, i got a lot more to cover. So not only is he Father, but he's Almighty. <laughs> we believe one God, uh, the Father Almighty. Uh, and and the New Testament says, I, uh, and I will be your Father, just as God quoting, uh, speaking in, from, in the Old Testament, quoted in the New Testament, you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. There's a direct connection between God's fatherhood and God's uh, um, uh, uh, omnipotence. Almighty means absolute and universally sovereign. Sovereign means completely in control. There's nobody above him. And it's absolute. It's universal. There's nowhere you can go uh, to get beyond God's sovereignty. Nothing and no one can compare to him or challenge him. And this is extremely important. Okay? <laughs> My dad's bigger than your dad. <laughs> but then you go, oh, wait a minute, he's your dad too. <laughs> so you really should get to know dad. Because he's amazing. Right? And that's, that's the truth. Is, but there's this need, there's this desire that there, we have someone that can protect. You know, if you have a, a dad that is, is weak or uh, uh, insufficient, then it's actually a negative in life. But Understand that our God is almighty. 
So he's the best provider, protector, comforter, counselor, the best of everything. Whatever category you need, he's, he, he's, there isn't any better. And that Christi, Christianity is the representation of the God, Almighty, the top of the top. Everything else is below under him, not simply a God. Uh, and I want to tie this into the story of Abraham who is the uh, 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 founder, really, of, of Judaism, but also monotheism, and, and really shaped so much of, of what we uh, understand as Christianity was, was played out uh, in, the, in the life story of Abraham and as it followed through the, the Old Testament. But in this interaction, Abraham was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai. And it's a Hebrew word for God Almighty. So he reveals himself as the God. This is it. Abraham is, is, is recognized as the, as the first person, certainly, who established a monotheistic religion that lasted. Okay? And so even the idea of just one big God that's above everything else uh, was really brand new. Uh, at his time now, obviously Adam and Eve understood it, but that f- quickly fell apart when humanity uh, fell into sin. But uh, Abraham was like, wow, there's one God. And he began to worship this one God. And then God shows up and says, I am the El Shaddai, the all-powerful. Serve, and then he continues talking to this man, Abraham. He says, serve me faithfully and live a blameless life, and I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. Oh! So God says, I'm all powerful, and I'm going to give you lots of kids. <laughs> right? Abraham fell on the ground, and God said to them, this is my promise, my covenant. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm changing your name. And in the Bible, name refers to a person's character, who they are. Okay? And so God's saying, I'm going to change who you are. You're not just going to be Abram, you're going to be Abraham. So from father to father of many, a father to multitude. And so what I see here is an illustration, a picture in this interaction between God and Abraham of God saying, I'm going to take my nature and the expression of my omnipotence, my almightiness, and it's going to be put in you to be a father because there's a direct connection between God's power and God's expression as a father. Uh, <clears throat> And so we understanding us, understanding this should really shape us. God is not uh, a tyrant just out to have his way. He is a provider that can really provide. He's a protector that can really protect because he's almighty. His fatherhood and his power are intricately connected to produce life, all right? To produce, to reproduce his character in those who follow him, in those who take him up on his promise, just like he did in Abraham. So just like he changed Abraham's name, he wants to change your name. He wants to change who you are, and you are able to enter into that, to take on his nature when you receive, when you accept his promise. That's all Abraham had to do, is believe. I say, okay, I believe you. And, and the Bible says that that was accounted to him as righteousness. He got in on it. <clears throat> Being a father means it's no longer about you. Amen, fathers? Once you have a kid, guess what? It's no lo- what's no longer about you? Everything. Your time, your money, 
your attention, everything, right? It's about your kids. Uh, and that's what God is like. Your purpose is to provide and protect others, and that's what God is like. God is the Father uh, to all, and uh, we're called into a relationship experiencing that father nature of God so that we can share it with all of those orphaned children that have been disconnected. We need to walk in it so it shapes our lives so that we can walk around and have that intimate relationship, but it's so that we can share it with others. All right, so maker of heaven and earth and of all things uh, and of all that is seen and unseen. Well, what does this mean? Listen, first of all, the fact that this was spelled out clearly in 325 A.D. and was part of the Apostles' Creed even before that tells us that defending the idea of creation is not something new. Christians in our day, especially American Christians in our day, because of America media and American Christian media especially, uh, sells a lot of uh, product on this creation issue. And we think it's like this new argument ever since this guy Darwin and some other guys came along. But let me just tell you a secret. This has been debated from the beginning, all right? There's always been debate as to creation and how it fits in. What we see here is that part of the essential statement of faith is that the Father, our God, that we worship, created everything. Heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen. Father as creator is central to our faith. And uh, what that does is actually, you know, if you pray to God the creator, you automatically eliminate all the other so-called beings, spirits, or ideas that didn't actually create everything. Does that make sense? And it's like, I'm talking to the one who created everything. You know, so the devil goes, oh, that wasn't me, you know. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) This is important. Paul says it this way, uh, explaining the same idea to the first century church. He says, there may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. The same today as it was then. But we know that there is only one God. In other words, there's one ultimate God. There's one God that's above every other spirit being, every other uh, thing. Uh, The Father, this is his identity, who created everything. That's the essential truth. And we live in him, and there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything, and through whom we have been given life. Okay, so heaven and earth, and all that is seen and unseen. This was specific wording to combat the deception or the heresy or the wrong teaching that uh, heaven is good and the earth is evil, uh, that uh, the unseen world is spiritual and good and the seen world is corrupt and fallen. And that's called a Gnostic heresy. And it's still around today. It's just they use different words. Like being spiritual is good, but our physical bodies are broken and evil and, and to be hated. That's not true. God created your body. God created the heavens. Everything has one originator, and it's God. And it's all to be in one order, under his sovereignty. Even though there's evil in the world, it's part of God's 
God is sovereign, and his sovereignty will be displayed over. His power will be revealed over all uh, uh, areas, even if it's lacking in the moment. So, uh, heaven, just real quickly go through these, is God's realm, the spiritual realm. Uh, uh, You can can focus in on all these uh, to the nth degree, but I'm just going to bounce over them. Earth is man's realm, so the material world. Seen, obviously, things you can see, (laughs) right? Uh, Unseen, uh, invisible is, uh, of course, the spirit world, but it also means invisible natural stuff, right? And this is a lot of times Christians don't realize when we're saying this. So, like, God is sovereign over atoms and molecules and elements, right? He invented them. God is sovereign over things like gravity, right? He came up with the idea. He said, let's, let's make it work this way. They'll never figure this out. Listen, they still haven't figured it out, right? <clears throat> we know how to use it, but in the end they go, we just don't know how it fits with the rest of the equations. Like, gravity just throws off physicists. It's like one of the most principal things. But they still don't quite know how to fit it into the general theory, right? Uh, how about things like truth? You know, God, God created truth. It's not like God is God because he's true. You think about that? <laughs> This is truth. This is an expression of who he is. Uh, you, know, you know, God is just. You know, the justice of God. I'm going to hear great sermons on this. Listen to A.W. Tozer. He, he knocks it out of the park. Uh, there is no justice apart from God. It's not like God has to be just. God is God. He created the idea of justice. And then he communicated that because it's who he is. All right. So those kind of things, those are the invisible things that are all part of God's creation. All right. <clears throat> and he's our father. And we have a relationship with him. So all of this stuff that some of the stuff we see, most of the stuff we don't even see. I mean, just a few years ago they discovered this stuff called dark energy and dark matter. And now they're saying it makes up over 90 to 95% of the universe of the universe. Like in 50 years ago they didn't even know that existed. And so that means all of their theories lack taking into consideration, in their own words, 90 to 95% of what makes up the universe. How good of a theory, then, is it? (laughs) All right? It's like, oops. (laughs) God knew all of that. He put all of that in place, and he's your daddy. And he loves you. Uh, Oh, i got to get to this next slide. Really important. Come on, Clicker. Okay, so there's nothing outside of his dominion. Everything originated from him. Creation is about who and what, not the how. All right? Listen, creation, please hear this, uh, is about the who. The who is God. The what is everything. It's not about the how. If you think you're going to figure out the how... From two or three pages, I have recipes in cookbooks that are longer than this. (laughs) This is not a recipe on how to create the universe. Okay? This is actually best described as a poetic description of what actually happened. It's true. All right? How God created the earth exactly how it's described here. And here's a secret. 
Creation is actually talked about in other places, like in Isaiah and Job, but we won't get to that. <clears throat> how, how it's described, this is accurate. This is truthful. But if we try to force 20 and 21st century science onto an ancient poetic revelation, you're just going to get frustrated. <laughs> and whoever you're talking to is going to get really frustrated. <laughs> and you're going to miss the purpose of what it was written. It was written to talk about who. 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 Not how. All right? And when we understand this, I, I, you'll hear me say this all the time. Every significant truth in Scripture can be found in that first story. But you have to understand it in the context of that first story. And we miss it by arguing details about geology. I'm like, geology? What does that have anything to do with geology? All right? It has to do with the Father creating. It's beautiful. You know, and so, you know, you can have different ideas about how, and that's great. Dig into it. If you like that stuff, great. If you want to argue about it, I just don't argue. I don't argue about things that Christians argue about. <clears throat> because if you have two Christians arguing about something, they're not doing what they're called to do, which is to preach the gospel and to love on people. Yeah. All right? So, you know, if you want to talk about it, it's great. You can figure those things out, <clears throat> but you won't. <laughs> you won't. There are theologians from the second and third century that argued, you can look it up, you can find the books, about whether or not that was literal, figurative, from the second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth and tenth and eleventh centuries. Okay? Long before Darwin and scientific theory came along, they were going, well, what does this mean? They haven't figured it out. You think you're going to figure it out? <laughs> That's kind of arrogant. Arrogant. All right? Why? Again, it, 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 I'm sorry, I'm, it forces us to dig deeper because it's not a clear answer. Why? Because God wants us to seek after. The glory of God is to conceal a matter. The honor of a king is to search it out. So dig in. Try to figure it out. It gets your juices flowing, but don't get dogmatic about the how when the, when the purpose is the who. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. Oh, and the and what that produces then should be peace. If you're at peace with the Creator, then you can be at peace with the universe. Are you at peace with creation? Are you at peace with creation? Or are you at war with creation? Are you at peace with your physical body? Or are you at war with it? Are you at peace? Coming in and understanding God as the Father, as the Creator, brings you into a place of peace. Okay, we're going to end real quick. Uh, um, do you believe that God is your Father? Uh, do you believe? Have you embraced it? Is God relationally, have you accepted Him as your Father? Are you in relationship? Do you know His power? And then are you at peace with His creation? All of this stuff cannot be just intellectual ideas. It has to be embraced personally. Uh, and if it is, it can transform your life.